Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everybody. Uh, welcome to Podside Picnic. It's Pete, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Connor. Uh, today, we have a special treat for you. We're going to talk about Kazuo Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go, which is an exceedingly famous book that I've never heard of until Connor introduced me to it. So let's have Connor introduce the book to you. Uh, Connor, what's the book about? Never Let Me Go came out in 2005, and it is far from the first novel by Ishiguro, who prior to this, and maybe still, is better known for Remains of the Day, which was a successful movie with Anthony Hopkins and uh, also a fantastic novel, and he'd written several other ones. Uh, This one, what to say about it? It is sci-fi-esque, which is one reason that we're doing it. Um, not to give away too much, this comes out fairly early in the novel anyway, and it's, it's not like some huge dramatic reveal, which gets to the basic nature of the book, but essentially it's about, uh, it's in Britain in a recognizable version of Britain in like, you know, uh, the nineties and early two thousands and eighties, I guess when they're kids. And it's about this group of people who initially are kids at a boarding school. And it turns out they're being raised, they're clones who are being raised to be harvested for their organs in this otherwise exceedingly ordinary world. Um, And this book is famous for a lot of things. Uh, One of those things is just being a goddamn tearjerker, to quote Steve Zissou. (laughs) Uh, But a little bit on Ishiguro, he is Japanese-British. He was born in Japan, and his family moved to Britain when he was very young. Um, He was an early graduate of Britain's premier graduate creative writing program at the University of East Anglia, which I once sought a Marshall scholarship at and did not get. But, uh, <laughs> and he also, he's become a titan of contemporary literature. Um, you know, Remains of the Day Never Let Me Go remain his two most famous books. He is very much still alive and won the Nobel Prize in Literature, the absolute by far and away highest honor in literature in 2017. So he's a recent Nobel laureate. Um, And before we even dive into this, I will say that this particular book never let me go. When I read it as a college freshman, this book more than any other is probably the reason that I decided to become a novelist as opposed to other kinds of writing that interested me. Um, How's that, Pete, for an intro? I think it's fantastic. Uh, One of the things... Uh, Now, this is actually, in some ways, it's going to be a hard discussion because um, we're coming at it from different uh, directions completely. And while there are absolutely wonderful things I can say about this book, it's frankly one of the best written things I've ever, ever read. There's some things I could say that would potentially piss you off a great deal because you're obviously attached to this. Uh, Can I give you an example of one? Hit me with it. The plot is basically the Clonus Horror, a very terrible movie from 1979. Can you elaborate a bit? I mean, is is it really? It, what do you say? It's basically the plot. Like, what? What are you? What are you pointing to? 
Well, uh, the Clonus Horror is a movie about uh, politicians uh, setting up the secret island where people are grown, clones of them are grown to be uh, organ donors so the politicians can live longer. So, but are you? Well, go ahead. Well, it's let's talk about how it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing in that uh, "Never Let Me Go" is is a story about the donors and their exploration and uh, facing death, for example. But uh, I'm. This book is very hard for me, man, because on the one hand, it's it's like I said, it's some of the best writing I've ever read. Um, if I'm looking at it through a genre lens, it's it's not bringing a lot new to the table. Like that's not where it is on fire. All right. Well, I'm going to have make to. Sense? Of course, it makes sense. I'm going to have to hold back, though, so I don't say something some, some incredibly snobby things. But I will start by saying this. It sounds like. What you're calling plot is what I would just call conceit. That the basic conceit here is a familiar one, and I, I don't dispute that at all. Um, but we talk about plot in the context of this story, and I think things get very interesting. Um, and by the way, it's impossible to talk about Ishiguro. Uh, I will get back to what Pete was saying. I want to introduce this book a little bit further and say it's impossible to talk about Ishiguro without talking about the very specific uh, style of narration he almost always uses. What he almost always does is first-person narration that is self-consciously looking backwards, so not just past tense, but it's someone recounting events of the past in a sort of serene way as if they've fully processed them, which can be very deceptive. And part of what that means is that the narrators are not fully reliable, but their unreliability is something that is closely interwoven with the plot and takes a lot of time to reveal. Uh, the nature of their, me their memory is as vital to this as the nature of their morality. Um, and it also means that he is play, he plays a lot with sort of emotional repression because the way the narrators narrate, th the way the narrators discuss what happened is usually very subdued. That was the one word. When I first read this book as a teenager, tried to analyze it for class, I was at a loss for words, but the word I kept coming back to was subdued because it, it recounts all of this very gothic, often to the point of being creepy stuff or when it's not creepy, it's sort of deeply existential. Uh, and it does so in this very restrained, repressed way through the perspective of Kathy, who is a carer who sort of reached the end of her arc. And Define carer for the audience. Yeah, so a carer is, as these clones grow up, they start to donate their organs. And Kathy and her friends, notably Tommy and Ruth, grew up in a very privileged— this is an interesting thing about this book. It's also a British boarding school novel— uh, because they grew up in one of the more privileged estates, as they call them, which is sort of the clone breeding and development centers. And so theirs was sort of had the atmosphere of a posh boarding school, uh, as opposed to like, you know, an industrial chicken farm or whatever the alternative would be. And Kathy is a carer, which means that as these, these the, the, um, the clones are supposed to go through up to four donations of vital organs. By the fourth one, they're dead. And the carer is sort of their therapist and friend as they go through that process. And Kathy has been the carer for many people. And by the time that she's narrating the action of this book, she's already been a carer for her close friend, Ruth, who has died. And she's taking over at the end as a carer for Tommy, who is a friend and lover of both her and Ruth. And uh, spoiler, folks, I'm going to spoil this book for you. Again, we already told you the main conceit, which is not made a big secret of. The spoiler, mm -hmm. if there is one, is simply that these characters never rebel, really. 
they certainly question the system a little bit. They don't do so with the sort of aggressive capaciousness that we, people who watch things like the Hunger Games, would expect of them. They don't question it in a really uh, penetrating way, and they certainly don't rebel against it, and the sort of hovering dramatic question is why. And I'm rambling again, but Pete, do you mind, uh, before we get back to what you were talking about, because I want to, do you mind if I read a little bit from the opening of this book, just like one paragraph to sort of give people a sense of what I mean by subdued? Yes, yes. But I also want to talk about Kathy as Judas Goat when we come back to it. (laughs) Okay. So Pete and I have very competing agendas in this podcast, so we're going to try to keep it polite. (laughs) But uh, all right. Just so we have some sense of what I'm talking about, if you haven't read this novel, this is the opening of the novel. My name is Kathy H. I'm 31 years old, and I've been a carer now for over 11 years. That sounds long enough. I know, but actually they want me to go on for another eight months until the end of the year. That'll make it almost exactly 12 years. Now, I know my being a carer is long, so long isn't necessarily because they think I'm fantastic at what I do. There are some really good carers who have been told to stop after just two or three years, and I can think of one carer at least who went on for all of 14 years despite being a complete waste of space. So I'm not trying to boast. But then I do know for a fact they've been pleased with my work, and by and large, I have too. My donors have always tended to do much better than expected. Their recovery times have been impressive, and hardly any of them have been classified as agitated, even before fourth donation. Okay, maybe I am boasting now. But it means a lot to me, being able to do my work well, especially that bit about my donors staying calm. I've developed a kind of instinct around donors. I know when to hang around and comfort them, when to leave them to themselves, when to listen to everything they have to say, and when just to shrug and tell them to snap out of it. So that is a very subtle and arguably boring opening paragraph. Uh, it's, a, it's a woman boasting about her work while doing her British best not to boast. Uh, it, and it all sounds incredibly anodyne. And it loads up so many things immediately, uh, namely all of these ominously hovering questions about where does obedience really come from? How do we construct selves that obey the things we obey? Uh and I, I mean, this book, I could, I could analyze it forever, but it's, you, can, you can see how under this very mundane guise, you're already loading up the ammunition you're going to need for this very strange and I would say deeply distinctive story. But I'm going to let Pete uh, give me his repost about all the things that I'm... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, and, and it, you know me, I have this, this Midwestern Protestant desire to talk about points of ga- uh, commonality and, you know, point out all the ways we're, we're still friends before I go right for the throat. Um, I feel like this book is, I'm going to say it wrong. It, it's almost like it's wearing science fiction like a shirt, like science fiction or like all of the things that I've historically been been reading and studying and getting into is not the point of why he was writing this. He was having a communication. I'd probably need to read this book five or six more times to get to the point where I, I would be comfortable shooting from the hip. But my my take from one close read is that this book is about death, about how people come to terms with and cope to, with death and how, uh, how we fool ourselves through all, a number of different mechanisms. I'm sure there are more takes and I'm sure there are smarter takes, but that's the one I walked away with. And I almost feel that 
this writer said, okay, I can put this anywhere. So I'm going to do this clone thing because the, the, the trappings of the story is not the point. The interrelationship between the characters is the point. And that is both well done and brilliant and a hell of a challenge to me. Because when I think about science fiction, I think about uh, how speculation is used to tell stories about the future and where we, where we can go. And Ishiguro doesn't appear to care about that stuff at all. Like, he, he basically made a story that used, uh, I know you hate the term, but like some science fiction tropes. And he made something beautiful that doesn't advance any of the things that I would say would be necessary to advance to make a science fiction novel. Wow. Like, I've just been totally caught flat-footed by this book. I I disagree with you on so many different levels. <laughs> oh, I'd be very interested to hear it. I mean, first of all, I... You are welcome to put this book on trial for not being science fiction. I don't think that... I don't know that Ishiguro would even classify it as science fiction. I can shed some light on this by saying... A lot of his work is more intensely realistic or even historically granularly um, real in the sense like that that remains of the day is about the butler of a British lord who collaborates with the Nazis. Uh, and wait, what? Yeah, it's it's it, that, that unfolds. I'm sorry. That's a big spoiler. <laughs> but but that okay. unfolds through the narration of the butler and all of his sort of oh. repressed, subdued. Uh, I'm an idiot. I thought you said Legends of the Fall, and I'm just no. like, I don't remember that at all. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, and I'm sorry to spoil that, folks. I should have warned people before saying that. But it, that unfolds, again, subtly through his very subdued and repressed narration. Uh, artist of the Floating World is about a Japanese artist who during the war is involved with some bad things. And again, it's his unreliable narration unfolding it for us. Uh and, and Ishiguro, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going off on tangents about Ishiguro, but I was getting back to the point, which is that Ishiguro has written a book, his most recent book called The Buried Giant, is, according to Ishiguro, a fantasy novel. And it was at the point when Ishiguro put out that novel that he started defending genre, what we call genre fiction, rather conveniently. Once he wrote a fantasy novel, he wanted to defend it, right? And by the way, uh, fun fact, a very close age peer and someone that Ishiguro is often compared to, Ian McEwen who uh, oh, here we go. did Atonement, <laughs> uh, which you may have seen the movie ever, or the book of many other famous books. Apparently he trashed science fiction this week. So lots of things intersecting here. But I would go back and say, I don't know that, he, I, I could, we could figure this out easily. I don't know that Ishiguro has ever called this science fiction. I don't think he's wedded to the idea of it being science fiction. I don't think he considers himself science fiction writer. So you can put this on trial for that all you want, and I would probably say the book will just plead guilty to not being science fiction. I would say, I, but it, go, go ahead. I don't know. I, I don't think that's what I said necessarily. I, I just said he t he took advantages of science fiction tropes to advance this conversation, but it wasn't he he wasn't trying to direct this as a science fiction novel in the way that I've I've traditionally experienced. Uh, okay, like I. I wasn't trying to accuse him of anything. I, I Seriously, this is one of the best books I've ever read. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I spent a lot of words there talking about whether it's science fiction or not, which is probably a waste of time because my poor profound disagreement is I, I don't think it's about death. Uh, I mean, it is. That's it, what I was wondering. It's about death. Sure it is. Yes, because the characters die and they have to cope with their mortalities. So that insofar, yes, it is about that. But really, this is about uh 
I mean, I think at a much more urgent level and what makes it a more, what makes it more distinctive is that it's about how do we constitute obedience and how do we constitute ourselves through obedience and what does it mean to live within and work within the systems of power that we have to cope with. And this book offers up shocking answers that do not match up with our expectations that we get from the culture generally, but especially the expectations that we get from science fiction and other genre writing, which is that the hero, the protagonist, is going to be the person who most radically questions and resists the dominant system. In this book, that is not only very far from being true, the characters all throughout, they certainly have questions about what they're up against, but they can never fully formulate in a sort of open, overt way a critique of the profound injustice of it. I mean, there's one point where a key character is just screaming out into the open open field because partly because he can't even articulate what's wrong. Uh, these characters go about their lives. They're not being locked up. They're, they're living in all around England uh, as adults and reporting back in to have their, ar- their organs harvested. And they don't, they don't see it as this, glo- well, I guess they do see some glory in it at times. They sometimes buy the propaganda, but the point is this, that they do it. It's like in the act of killing when they talk about the Indonesian communists lining up to be executed and we're all like, oh no, people would never do that. But that's what people do, right? In so many instances. Uh, it's about what, are the, you know, what does obedience to power really mean and how does it really work uh, in a really layered and subtle way that I, I don't know that anything quite matches what Ishiguro can do at his best in this one and remains to the day. Uh, does that make sense, Pete, or I'm getting with that? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think uh, um, uh, Rashomon. What about Rashomon? Well, I, I mean, I think when we're, when I'm talking about uh, people interacting with uh, with death and how they lie to themselves, and she's acting as a Judas goat, that it that dovetails directly into the concept of obedience. I just like I, I don't, um, I. I don't feel like I missed the mark, even from what you said. It sounds it sounds like we're talking in the same area. Well, no, I I, it's not I'm that saying. I'm trying to prove you wrong. I'm simply saying yeah. that I am surprised that you initially leapt to death because, again, to me, what makes this book so strange and, and gives it so much, uh, what is why I've been unpacking it for over a decade now and why I'm still reflecting on it and finding new things in it is simply because I don't know of a treatment of how we construct ourselves through and within obedience systems of power, which sounds very abstract. I mean, you've read my novel, you know that it's, it touches on some of that as well. Um, but again, in a more traditionally genre way, it's not that I think you're wrong. I, I really don't believe that. I, I don't see the discussions as contests. Of course you're right that at one level it's about death. And I agree with you. It, um, I, I think though, Tell me if you think this is unfair. You probably think this is unfair. But I, I see you making a series of distancing moves with this book, uh, perhaps because you don't like the way that it uses science fiction. And one of those distancing moves is just to say um, that, it, of course, it's brilliant. What are you saying that it's brilliant? It almost sounds like you're putting it at arm's length. Like, of course, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant treatment of character, but it, it wears the genre that I like as a shirt. And I did think, by the way, that you phrased that a little bit accusatorily. You're saying that you weren't. But uh, you, you said you made it sound like he was playing a game, essentially, where he took the tools of science fiction and, and used them almost to show off. And I, I don't see that being here at all. I think that he found a conceit that we would call a science fiction conceit uh, about that allowed him to create a situation where the characters were both radically controlled and radically obedient. Um, 
but also would have had so many opportunities to resist because after all, they're, they have to voluntarily surrender their own internal organs, which there are many ways to stop that from happening. Um, am I making any sense here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I, it's, it's hard if, if you had described this novel to me without showing it to me, my first thought would be suicide. Exactly. So why don't any of the characters ever kill themselves or even begin to ideate that? My second thought would be the Millikan experiment. What's the Millikan experiment? Oh, it's, um, it, if, if any, any time you start studying why, uh, people obey horrible orders like like the Millikan experiment always pops up when you're talking about, say, the Holocaust. Uh, but the, the basic idea is you brought a bunch of guys with with lab coats and clipboards in a room and you put a guy down and you say, OK, press this button and the guy in the other room's going to get an electric shock. And so the guy's doing a test and every time he gets an answer wrong, the guy's supposed to give him a shock. And over time, it uh, um, the guy starts acting like he has a heart attack and uh, the the guys in the lab coats don't interfere, but they're like uh, the uh, the experiment needs to continue. Uh, please continue the process, that sort of thing. And uh, the overwhelming majority of people keep pressing that button until that person fakes their own death. Oh, yes, yeah, so I have heard of that. And that is certainly germ- yeah. germane to this. But I want to point out a few things. One is that. That, much like the Stanford prison experiment, arguably has an element of sadism to it. It also is more coercive than anything in this novel. There's never, we never see anything even close to the coercion of an authority figure standing over you, urging you to do oh, something. Yeah, there's like that. literally, there's literally no authority figure in this doing that at all. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree with that. I, I, okay. Um, let's explore this. Like on the one hand, you've, uh, you've expressed a concern that I'm being, uh, sort of accusatory and defensive about this, this, you know, this novel and its relationship to science fiction. I sort of feel like I'm getting the reverse from you. Like, I feel like you're being protective of this book. Oh, definitely. I am. I'm just trying to tease out for our listeners, our beloved listeners, uh, you you coming at this with your science fiction heuristics uh, and, and me coming at this with my longstanding history with it. Um, and, and back when I first read this, I thought I was going to be uh, the most literary of writers, partly because I saw this and I was like, wow, this is there's something what I what I got when I first read this was I was like, I didn't know a novel could produce these effects in me. I didn't know these kinds of subtlety existed in on the page. Mm-hmm. I just I, I, it was a, it was an introduction to a whole new way of evoking feeling and of raising intellectual questions uh, through on the page generally, but especially through the form of, the, of a novel. I'd never seen anything like it. And the funny thing is, ten years and hundreds of novels read later, I still haven't seen anything quite like this. Um, I am protecting it for sure. I. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying – I think this is a good episode for us to talk about some of the really fundamental differences in the ways that we read. And I do think that it was yeah. very interesting how you immediately jumped to this is ripping off some shitty B-movie from the 70s, which it might be, by the way. I don't, I, it, it's possible that Ishiguro stole the idea from there or from elsewhere. Um, mm-hmm. I just wouldn't see that as very significant personally. But uh, I want you to keep expanding on your point of view. Well <sighs> – I mean, what what we seem to be approaching is what science fiction is for. I guess that is what uh, 
Be, because like I, there are a number of novels that we could pull up where I could comfortably do this whole spiel about how uh, the structure of science fiction and the purpose of science fiction is to act as a laboratory for ideas to, you know, create a scenario about usually the future to put a lens on the now and what's wrong with the now. And this doesn't really do that. I mean, it's not, it's not talking about the now. It's just talking about people. And, like, that's not a bad thing. It's like, like discussing the nature of who people are is quite possibly the greatest thing that a novelist could do. But I find myself in a situation where I read this book and uh, I, I, I mean, straight up, it's a great book. I'm still thinking about it. But if you'd have asked me to create a series of standards for what good science fiction is, I, I, like that list wouldn't have matched what's going on with this book. It's that either makes it a genre breaker, which is entirely possible, or the other argument you could make is like this is successful literature, but not science fiction within the box that I typically draw it. Like I like I don't know what to do with the damn book, Connor. That's where I'm at here. Well, I'll unpack that further because I, I, I think that you see you're trying to move toward a theory in which the genre of science fiction, perhaps genres generally, have a purpose that we can define. Whereas my view of genre uh, has always been they are marketing categories above all else in the, in the contemporary last several decades at least. Uh, and insofar as they are something beyond that, they are mostly a set of tools because my loyalty, for instance, is more to the novel as a form more than specific genres that are practiced within that form. Uh, partly because I think that I don't think I know for a fact that the way that novels get categorized in genre terms shifts dramatically over time uh, to the point where uh, to the point where it's always circling back to that first point about genres being marketing categories. And mm-hmm. I get, you know, I, I, I guess I think you have a more exalted view of science fiction than that. And you want to create a unified field theory of the genre of science fiction within the novel. And, I don't want to get in the way of that. I'm just trying to tease out what that means in the context of this book. Well, and part of it, like you and I have have sort of like texted back and forth about this in the past. Like there's a uh, like we we've got some one word descriptions of each other in dealing with these situations. Like uh, you've called yourself an esthete and you've called me a moralist and like. I, I'm sure we could come up with counterexamples, but like that's that's largely a fair description. It's a little cartoonish, but it's like it's not wrong. Yeah, I mean, it has. I use those words because I said this to you. I don't, I've said this in the Discord chat. I'm not sure I said this on our show, but I was trained. I had it sort of beaten out of me in college uh, that I was not to assess texts from a moral point of view at least in the first instance, that that would not be my go-to. Uh, I had a particular professor named Tom Ferraro, wonderful teacher, um, American literature specialist who was very fixated, not, I mean, in a good way, on the Puritanism in the American literary tradition and how it's been 
reproduced by students themselves. Uh, and he, he sort of just taught me to be wary of making moral judgments, whether it was moral judgments about the way the text operates out in the world, whether it was about the author or about the way the characters operate within the text, any of it, that the moral judgments should, should, I should, I should be very suspicious of those judgments that I was making and interrogate them and probably withhold them in favor of aesthetic judgments, frankly, uh, of a certain kind. Um, and I could go into depth on that, but I think that, that Pete, is it fair to say that you are much more comfortable making moral judgments about art? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean like, uh, while I think aesthetic judgments are incredibly important in dealing with art, uh, like the purpose of art to me is to be a vehicle for a message. And I know that that's anathema to a lot of people. It certainly sounds like it was anathema to him. Uh, I don't think he would couch it in those terms. I mean, look, it, Professor Ferraro, for instance, if you're listening to this, love you, man. But he's he's an incredibly highbrow guy in general and would give a very complicated answer uh, that would be very theory intensive. But to be a vehicle for a message, the reason... Without diving into all of the, you know, critical theory reasons why we annoying grad student types would prod at what you just said, I I have little interest, for instance, in solidifying a single message. I am more interested in the dynamic, perhaps even dialectical, uh, ways that something like Never Let Me Go plays with its own contradictions and its own ambiguities and its own layers of meaning. And that, to me, is, is in many ways the highest calling of the novel, I'm not sure that I can even achieve it at this point as a writer of, of like this incredibly complex interplay of different elements and the ways in which they work against one another and in tandem with one another. It ultimately, ultimately, the appeal of art for me can only be phrased in a series of paradoxes, which I guess makes me, uh, you know, very postmodern in a way. But um, before I ramble too much off into the ether, uh, I want to say that I, I admire your impulse to seek a message. I just think that it's it's I see it as kind of a doomed enterprise in a lot of cases. Uh, and in case of Never Let Me Go, I'm not sure that you could pry a message out of its cold, dead hands. I think it's a book that will resist that in the same way that one of our fav- my favorite recent things that we've reviewed, the, the film Us by Jordan Peele, would resist that. I don't think you're going to get a message out of Never Let Me Go other than simply a very challenging that perhaps your sense of authority and how we construct authority in our own selves and how we go about challenging it or believing we're challenging it is perhaps wildly different than we think, especially wildly different than the way we think through like a story like Star Wars. Oh, well, yeah. The thing is, when I talk about message, I'm not necessarily talking about a fortune cookie. I mean, a message could be as simple as uh, think about your relationship with authority. Bam, message. And I think... I even as I'm walking into this, it definitely like you're not setting a trap for me. Good intent on both sides here, but it certainly feels like a trap because I've just drawn a very tight box around myself. It's like the function of art is to send a message. Well, is is mountains are pretty a message? You know, it's like I like I immediately start seeing places and examples where that's not a perfect fit. And so uh, I guess one of the things I should say here is that uh, I, I've, 
I haven't spent as much time thinking about this as I probably should. Like, uh, I've been, I read science fiction because I enjoy it and haven't probably spent as much time about it thinking about its taxonomy and the nature as maybe I necessarily should. But what I can say is that this book um, absolutely caught me off guard and it wasn't structured. It didn't feel like any other science fiction book I ever read. Well, and part of the reason is categorization as as you've implied. Yeah. I think we could have, a very interesting and very well-informed debate about whether this is science fiction that would probably need us, require us to do some research we haven't done and would not necessarily be about our definitions of science fiction, but it's like, I think that might be, that could be made into a testable proposition uh, in a way that we haven't ventured to do, but it's an interesting one. Um, Let me ask you a different question though. Uh, Does this book make you want to read more by Ishiguro? And if so, why? Oh, absolutely. Great. Because because it was a challenging text. It wasn't okay. It's how do I say this? It's very easy to read this book. Like when you when you're reading it, it draws you in. There's not like I'm not struggling through the sentences, but I am struggling through the text as a whole. Like there's a lot going on, um, and I I'm not used to that. I'm not used to the author being ahead of me. That's an unusual experience for me. Even when, like, I, I've got a soft spot for Victorian authors, and that doesn't generally happen there either. But in reading this book, I do feel like I could have a different experience on the third read or the fourth read. And that's not always the case. I mean, that that's the sign of, of something very special happening here. And I'd definitely like to see what else he has to offer. Well... First of all, Pete, I'm not going to let you get away with saying you have a soft spot for Victorian authors when you haven't even finished reading Wuthering Heights. <laughs> I did not say all Victorian authors. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just had to call you out on that. Um, oh, no problem. No, I, well, that's good to hear. I'm glad that you liked it. Um, this is this is tricky for me. This is a book that, despite my love for it, I've always struggled to discuss I think the reason it became one of my favorite novels is precisely because I had a tough time analyzing it for my class uh, when I was a freshman in college. It just it just bamboozled me in the best possible way. Um, I want to go back to what you're talking about, your definition of science fiction. Um, trying to think. Like, you said that science fiction – I think what you started to say was that science fiction is – it's about the future in a way that has a kind of normative or moral thrust to it, right? It's like, what should the future be uh, off the lens of how we're going to fuck up the future? And it's kind of a cautionary tale or whatever else. But there's always some sense of like, because it's science fiction, extrapolating our technological advances or possible technological advances into a broader vision of how we can live better or worse. Is that kind of what you were getting at? That's where I was going. I I mean, I, I can certainly immediately think of some very bad versions of science fiction that don't do that. And I'm sure there are some very good ones, too. But like that's close enough to what I think the reality is that I'll stand on the gra- that ground for the purposes of this discussion. I'm t- I'm not trying to be weaselly, man. But it's it well, it's it's like you uh, it's like you going to jury jury duty, man. Yes or no is tough. I don't think you're being weaselly at all. I, I just am wondering why you think this one f- is not that, because I would say, for instance, even though it is set 
in like the, what is now the recent past, um, it, it does beg some classic sci-fi questions of what personhood means and how we construct otherness and the role that science plays in that. Because again, these, these kids are clones uh, and we get hints that in their own society, they're viewed as, as profoundly other, perhaps not fully human. And this is, this is a, this is Blade Runner. This is a million sci-fi stories, right? Um, why did you not feel that that was sort of a classic science fiction set of questions to ask? Um, yeah, I like these ideas are half formed as I'm talking about, but it almost feels like he was going for bigger game than a, than a typical science fiction author would be going for. Like he was not using the, 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 the tools of science fiction to put a lens on society. He was using the tools of science fiction to put a lens on people. The nature of obedience is what we're talking about here, or the nature of death, like if, if you go with, with what I was originally saying. But it's not about how, uh, how people in modern society interact with those things, or at least not primarily. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I'm not totally sure I agree, although... You have gotten to something that's really interesting to me, which is that one of the simplest and most common shorthands that people use to talk about what is the difference between so-called genre fiction and so-called literary fiction, which, of course, is a distinction that is arguably collapsing. And please, good riddance. It's a stupid distinction. But uh, that is often drawn by saying people often say genre fiction tends to be more plot driven, whereas uh, literary fiction tends to be more character driven. Very simplistic shorthand, but uh, it can be it, it can be true insofar as this is useful categories to begin with. Uh, and would you say that's part of what you're seeing? You're saying here? Yeah, no, it's part of it for sure. I, I, uh, yeah, I, like I don't I don't like these pauses. I almost want to want to have them cut out later, but it's uh. uh Reading this book did uh, part of the yeah let let me go there part of this is emotional response reading this book did not feel like reading science fiction it felt like reading literature there is a quality beyond like the random metrics that I normally go to that is in play here. And I hate that idea so much. The idea that there isn't like the qual quality is an abstract is both a true thing and a terrifying concept. The, the idea at that point, you're almost talking about Taoism. Like there's a thing that you cannot perfectly define that makes this what it is. I hate that crap just because it's sometimes true. And it feels like that's part of what's happening here. There's something literary happening here and damn it that's not sufficient <laughs> no but i think first of all i'm very comfortable in that territory of just saying there's something Ugh. here that's hard to describe there's something ineffable about this book there really is i truly believe that and i always have uh you're uncomfortable oh, with it man, which maybe... i wish we were talking about lovecraft because that's precisely where my head goes off my shoulders when we start getting into ineffable there well but but I've called you a moralist, and I think there's another term that I could use that is perhaps shed some light on why you are the kind of reader that you are. Uh, scientist. Do tell. Scientist. 
Be, okay. You are you are frustrated that you cannot you cannot you used terms like metric that you cannot apply your what you consider to be rational heuristics to this novel. That seems to be what I'm getting here. I think there's some truth to that. I think uh, analysis is important to me. It's not. Is it the sole tool on my box? No, but it's it's very important. Um, like one of my favorite books is well for enjoyment is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. And that sounds like a book about Eastern philosophy, but it is largely about Western analysis. The the Aristotelian breaking things into categories. And while I'm always suspicious of that approach, I go to it again and again. And it's it often yields dividends. It doesn't here. Interesting. Well, I would hasten to add uh, one can do analysis that is strictly non- scientific uh, as, a, as a humanist, but I mean, I, I, I'm splitting hairs there a little bit, but uh, it's, I have always jumped to your morality, but I, I really do think that perhaps, Pete, there is a deep relationship here between your affection for science and doing practical things, uh, also connected to your Lutheran upbringing. <laughs> uh, I'm, it's possible, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm teasing a little bit, but I, I, I think there's something else going on here as well, because you know, I, I was I was raised and I've continued to be very comfortable in sort of the the mysteries of art, mystery paradox, whatever phrase you want to use. And this is a, one of those, this is one of those books that profoundly gets me to that place where I'm like, well, there's an immense amount for me to analyze here, and there's also some something being produced in me that can only be described as a feeling or a mood, and those words almost feel too small to do it justice. Uh, gosh, especially at 19, I felt that I. Oh, wow. It's, it's, as I think back on this, I'm having one of those moments where I'm just transported and I'm like, wow. Because I really don't know if I hadn't read this when I was 19, I don't know that I would have uh, ever written a novel. And now I have. And uh, it's very unlike Ishiguro's novel, but also in some deep thematic ways. Uh, I think he's influenced me quite a lot. And now I'm getting very wistful and reflective. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's, let's go there for a minute. Like you've, when was the first time you read this book? I know you had to read it for college. Was there a time before that? Oh no. I mean, I was assigned it, uh, you know, this would have been the fall of 2008 when, um, Barack Obama was being elected and the global economy was collapsing. And I, at that point, as I was right around when I was turning 18, you know, my first semester of college, I was convinced that the uh, global economic crisis would be a blip and would all, everything would be fine in short order before I graduated, certainly. <laughs> uh, but it just that's, that gives you a frame for how what kind of, how different I was and, and where the world was when I was reading this. And this book had come out a few years prior. Um, I, I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, I was given it by one of my professors who is really a sharp dude who I took, I later did multiple independent studies with and uh, was just very tight with. That was Michael Moses, uh, English professor. Um, gosh. It, yeah, and I came into college knowing that writing was my main aptitude, as it were. Uh, I, I really thought I wanted to be a journalist. And e- even at that particular moment, 2008, uh, journalism as we'd known it for a few generations was already collapsing. Um, and I came from a background where I'd been surrounded by fiction writers in particular. And 
you know, I was thinking about the kinds of writing I was interested in. And when I read this, I was like, I, I have to do some version of this because this is the only, this novel is an example of, of a way of producing something in writing that I can't imagine doing in any other form of writing. Uh, and I still can't. And yeah, if there's a single novel for me that exemplifies sort of the, the, the mysterious promise of the art form, it's this one. Um, so, I mean, I really recommend not I really recommend reading this if you haven't, <laughs> in case you haven't gotten that wow. from the episode so far. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I go on and on about this without really saying much. <laughs> yeah. No, fair enough. Well, the, the, it's there. We've spent a lot of time in this discussion drilling down on me, which is okay. I mean, part of this is exploring our relationships to books. And my relation to this book, while not as deep as yours, is certainly pretty weird for me. Like, this is not where I usually land. But your relationship to this book is fathoms deep. Like, this book is more than a book to you. And it makes it an interesting discussion because, uh, well, I mean, it, I, I got to be careful with it, frankly. I mean, we like uh, this is this is one of the well, like we've drawn out some of your opinions of how I approach things just on the basis of being in your backyard for this book. And I honestly, I think that's pretty valuable. I think it's something we can use in the future. Well, yeah, I agree. And I think we've each said some things about how we view the genre of science fiction or the idea of genre that are going to be useful to us going forward. I didn't fully know the form my thoughts and some of these things took. I mean, I don't think it was until right now that I've ever directly said with conviction, certainly not publicly, you know, tear down genre distinctions. But I think that I kind of at the point where I believe that, um, you know, my project, mm -hmm. uh, which I have to mention every episode, uh, is <laughs> classified probably, um, it certainly is more on the genre end of things, despite uh, having so many influences that are purely literary, whatever that means. And it, it falls on that side of the divide for marketing purposes because it ended up being very plot driven. Uh, or I shouldn't say plot driven. It just has, it has a lot of plot <laughs> and the story moves forward in a sort of highly structured way. And that, that makes it a genre novel, uh, it's speculative fiction or whatever you want to call it. And again, you can see the, the frustration as I talk about this, it's just, I, <laughs> I'm talking about my own project reveals to me how silly I think these distinctions are. I mean, it, it, what is Robinson Crusoe? You know, one of the most, one of the first like commercially successful English novels, which is an adventure story. Um, what I mean is that it, it, of course we consider it part of the literary canon. If a version if a novel like that came out now, it would be treated as genre fiction. And so what the hell do we do with that? I mean, it's just one of many examples that sort of show the, the incredible artifice, and of course, genre categories are artificially constructed, but it's just like the artifice well, is so cheap in a lot of cases. I'll be honest, it, it feels a little bit like being anti-glacier to me. Like, there was definitely a movement to break down the walls of genre fiction. Weird fiction deliberately tried to do that, and you know exactly what happened. They just drew a box around it and called it something else. What, what do you mean? Expand on that a little bit. Well, the whole point of weird fiction was to violate the walls of genre fiction and do something different that didn't fit the little categories. And when people did that, they just drew a new box. See, I kind of view it 
somewhat differently because I haven't read that much weird fiction. But for instance, I think of Jeff Vandermeer, one of the uh, real grandees of weird fiction, as being someone who has successfully crossed from genre fiction into mainstream literary success, and I applaud him for it because I think that is a, that's an important path-breaking thing that he's done with Annihilation specifically. Uh, so I, I, I'm sure that you're right in a historical sense. I just think that there are some great examples of people who are working to break down these barriers. I think another longstanding example would be Margaret Atwood. Um, well, 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 wait, 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 wait a minute here. Um, <laughs> so what you're telling me is Vandermeer, for example, should be commended from going to uh, from the box of weird fiction into literature when you've already said those boxes are meaningless to you. No, I think what he's done is help dissolve the necessity of the distinction by proving to a literary audience through one of the most prestigious literary publishers, that being for Strauss and Guru, uh, and the kind of success he's had also moving to screen. I think that he's done a good job showing, I will use these tools of weird fiction and science fiction, and I will use them in a way that has an urgency that you, literary person, cannot deny. And I think that he is one of the many people that I consider to be doing us all a service. I would I would say other names would be people like Margaret Atwood, Colson Whitehead, arguably Michelle Welbeck, who are doing something similar and saying that we can't that it's not just a, a performance of what I can do, you know, playing playing around in different genre styles. It really is that we can do our most forceful work by getting over genre barriers and taking the best from these categories that are necessarily cordoned off from each other. That is something that I really deeply admire and strive for in my own work. Does that make more sense? Yeah, and I think it's probably a good place to leave the discussion for today. (laughs) All right, well, I'm sure we're going to keep talking about these issues for the duration of however long this podcast lasts, which hopefully this podcast will last to the heat of the universe when Pete and I are consciences... uh, you know, consciousnesses, rather, consciences and consciousnesses floating in little fluid tanks. <laughs> I, I was hoping for something more electronic, but I would accept a fluid tank. Yeah, we'll just be computer programs. In fact, you know, how do you know that we're not already? <laughs> and on that note. On that note, thanks, everyone. Take care. Take care.